0: Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, if you've been with us uh, throughout Lent, we've been working our way through the gospel according to St. Luke. And it tells us right at the very beginning of this gospel that he's putting together an orderly account of what has happened happened in and around the life death and resurrection of Jesus. And I have to say in my humble opinion Luke has the most orderly of all the accounts of Jesus entry into Jerusalem except for one small fact. I'm not sure if you notice this but in Luke's version there is no mention of any palms. I'm not sure how you're going to cope with this, uh, but there is no palms in Luke on Palm Sunday. But I do think uh, this is an important passage to try and understand the context of. Sometimes we can just see Palm Sunday as the happy bit before we get to the sad bit, before we get to the really happy bit in our journey through Holy Week. There is, however, so much more. Verse 28 begins with these words. After he had said this. There you go. Look at that. (laughs) There's not much in there. (laughs) After he had said this. For this that Jesus said is important. Before Jesus gets uh, to the Mount of Olives, he's passing through Jericho, and a crowd gather around him. Not only would have there been a sizable group of Jesus' followers who were walking with him on the way to Jerusalem, but there would have also been a number of people from the local community who would have heard the buzz about Jesus' arrival and had a sense of eagerness and anticipation in seeing what he would say or what he would do based on his reputation. So the crowd was a mix of followers and locals caught in the hype. One of the people in that crowd was one of Jericho's notorious elements. He wanted to see Jesus you might remember the story of Zacchaeus. uh, That really, really short tax collector who climbs the tree until Jesus notices him and then Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. It's at Zacchaeus' house that Jesus says, the this, that's referred to in verse 28. But before we get to the this, If you were here with us last week, you might remember the passage that I preached on was Luke's um, washing of Jesus' feet by the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's home in chapter seven of Luke's gospel. Simon was a well-to-do Pharisee. And I explained that in that time in that community, the well-to-do invited people into their homes which was like a big public courtyard, which had accessibility and visibility from those outside. Now, Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, would also have been well-off, perhaps more so than Simon. It was just that the way that he acquired his wealth was not as reputable as Simon. But I'm sure that his home was at least a mini-mansion overlooking a canal, Jericho-style equivalent dwelling place. Jesus would have taken a a good chunk of his travelling group, and I'm sure a number of interested locals would have also come along with him to see what Jesus was going to do at Zacchaeus' home. And from here he says the this, which is a parable about a nobleman who gives three slaves an equal sum of money, and then goes away and becomes a king. And when he comes back, he gathers these slaves together and he finds that the first one has doubled his money, the second one has got a 50% return, and the third one hid the money and bought it out and gave him back what he gave him. Now, the reason that Jesus told this parable, along with its kingly metaphor, is the important bit of the parable for the the Palm Sunday story. The parable in itself is very important, but for this story, it's the reason that he tells us that we need to notice. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, just before we get to the parable, Jesus says, because he was near Jerusalem and because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's why he told the parable. Jesus had been doing a three-year sermon series on the kingdom of God. And some who had been paying attention expected the kingdom of God to appear right there and then. And this expectation was also amongst his disciples. Just before Jesus gets to Jerusalem in John's gospel, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And Thomas makes this claim. Let us also go to Jerusalem that we may die with him. What Thomas is referring to is his willingness to go with Jesus and encourage all the others into a conflict situation to bring to a head all this kingdom of God stuff that Jesus has been talking about. The people of Israel did not like being under foreign authority. And so an anticipation and expectation that they would finally be only under God's authority, which is the way it was always supposed to be, must have been exciting for them. The problem was that they were bringing their own interpretation, their own anticipation, and their own expectations. As Luke sets out in this passage in an orderly ma- manner, we also see the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy coupled with kingly imagery, which would also have added to their excitement and anticipation. Now, apologies if you find this sort of stuff boring, but for Bible nerds like me, I love the way this all connects and interconnects with the Old Testament. So I'm going to quickly take you through how uh, Luke, um, in an orderly manner, does this. Jesus starts at the Mount of Olives, which brings to mind Zechariah's prophecy. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. The preparation in borrowing a colt or a donkey, as is translated in other parts of the Gospels, is also familiar in Genesis binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And a parade involving the riding of a donkey or a colt and laying garments bring both kingly imagery of the past and also prophesied to mind. Again in Zechariah, lo, your king, comes to you triumphant and victorious is he humble and riding on a donkey and in uh, 1 kings david says have my son solomon ride on my mule then blow the trumpet and say long live king solomon and in kings and 2 kings they hurriedly then hurriedly they took their cloaks and spread them for him On the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. The crowd's chant is a development of Psalm 118, which is used for processions in uh, Jewish um, religious services. And in fact, our liturgy this morning has been crafted around Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the response that the Pharisees give would have reminded those who heard Jesus' response of Habakkuk. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. As Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, he's initially interpreted as fulfilling the words of Israel's prophets and embodying Israel's kings. Parades and processions were part of Jewish culture and ritual, as evidenced by Psalm 118. But it wasn't just the Jews who liked parades. In fact, in Roman times, the greatest honour anybody could ever have was to be given a tribute a parade in their honour. And tributes were typically held to publicly celebrate the success of a military commander. On the day of his triumph, the general would wear a crown of laurel and a special toga of purple and gold to signify that he was near divine and near king. He would ride on a four-horse chariot through the streets of Rome towards the Temple of Jupiter. Ironically, the greatest shame in Roman times, which was very much all about honour and shame, greatest honour, a parade, greatest shame, another parade, carrying your cross to be crucified. You see the contrast. Jesus, who was actually divine, riding on a donkey heading towards the Jewish temple. The streets lined with a similar crowd to what would have been at Jericho, a mixture of his followers and locals who'd been caught in the hype. This whole situation was making the Pharisees very nervous. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, we hear that some of the Pharisees warned Jesus to tone it down because Herod already wanted to kill him. So he should lay low. Now some of the Pharisees who are in this crowd implore Jesus to tell his disciples to stop with their subversive chant. The Pharisees understand that by claiming Jesus as king when there already is a king in Jerusalem are dangerous words and might bring down the wrath of those in power, the Sanhedrin, Herod, or Pilate. This is a clash of kingdoms. The Roman kingdom versus the kingdom of God. Caesar and Herod or Christ, sort of like a biblical game of thrones. Caesar's kingdom is based on domination and ruthless power. The kind of kingship that Jesus actually refused in the wilderness. Remember that story that we heard at the very beginning of Lent, where Jesus is tempted to rule over all the world, The kingdom of God that Jesus preached is based on justice, on mercy, and the love of God. So we have a choice. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, or the Pax Christus, Jesus peace. The imagery can be profoundly obvious when we step through this passage like we've just done. But the thing is that this was profoundly misunderstood by the crowd who gathered around Jesus chanting Hosanna. Even the disciples profoundly misunderstood what was going on, as we learn as they lament on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. We know that many who were in that crowd on that day will be crying out for his crucifixion come Friday. They were expecting a mighty warrior, a mighty king who would overthrow the Romans. And when they saw Jesus with Roman soldiers, weak and vulnerable, they decided that that was not the king that they wanted after all. It's interesting how Jesus responds to this parade as well. You can imagine if somebody um, was walking down, down a parade route and everybody's chanting, Stuart is awesome, Stuart is awesome. At the end, you'd feel pretty buzzed and chuffed, wouldn't you? But not Jesus. We find out in the very next verses that what Jesus does is he weeps. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. As we look from a 2019 vantage point, it is easy to see this just as the happy bit before the sad bit before the really happy bit. But can we stop for a moment and ask ourselves what is hidden from our eyes? Do we have our own expectations that create a Messiah out of our own interpretation? our own anticipation, and our own expectations. I'm not really one for parades. I mean, I probably wouldn't say no if somebody wanted to throw a parade for me, but I'm really not that interested in ticker tape type parades. But in in 2005, um, our family of three at that time took ourselves off to Disneyland. And that particular year was the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. And every night they had a spectacular parade. Now, they do parades at Disneyland all the time, but because it was the 50th anniversary, this parade was supposed to be extra spectacular. And it was. It was amazing. It was entertaining. And for a non-parade liker like myself, I actually enjoyed myself. But why I remember this parade so well was Annika's reaction. She was three at the time, and she swore black and blue that during the parade, Tinkerbell actually waved at her. For a three-year-old, there was no appreciation of the detail in the costumes. There was no appreciation of the music or the amazing choreography of the dancers. What transfixed her the entire time, and it was a pretty long parade, (laughs) was that these were the actual Disney characters right there in front of her. There was no doubt or no question that these were the real deal. I mean, she was in Disneyland. That's where they lived. Now, as she's grown up, she has come to realise that those characters in the parade weren't actually real or the real ones, although she still swears that Tinkerbell actually waved at her. How quickly does our faith falter when God does not deliver what we're expecting. How quickly does our discipleship falter when we realise the cost and the risk of following Jesus? How often do our self-serving instincts lead us to deny Jesus and his claim on our lives? If we seek first our own interpretation, our own anticipation and expectations, over time, that will all be eroded and deconstructed by the trials and challenges of our world. And it will become just like a fairy tale. But if we seek first the kingdom of God, we do find a Jesus whose clarity and whose purpose is clear in Scripture. And powerful embodied in the relationship of his followers, enabled by the Holy Spirit. And much more impactful than anything that we can dream up or imagine. Today, as we head into Holy Week, we head into this week with a decision what kind of Christ will we encounter? What kind of Christ will wash our feet this Thursday? One that washes away the guilt of where we've been? Or one that prepares us for where we are to go? What kind of Christ will be nailed to the cross this Friday? One that symbolises a past event and a promise to make things better? or one that deeply moves us now to be confronted by our own brokenness and humbles us to trust in God's grace? What kind of Christ will rise again next Sunday? One that makes us feel good about ourselves or one that disturbs and challenges us and what we see in the world around us? a Christ that calls us to be a new creation in him. I pray that you have a holy week. Amen.